Let us, uh, let's read, shall we? Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, we finished verse 10 last time. But uh, we'll start our reading there because it's necessary for verse 11. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your boundless grace, vast, Lord, as an ocean towards us, high as the heaven above us, Thy loving kindness to us, Lord, we thank you for that. As we read thy word, uh, Lord, and seek to muster the due reverence, we realize, Father, we never do it justice and rely entirely on thy grace, freely given through Christ. Nonetheless, Lord, be with our hearts and our minds and grant us to take food from thy word and to keep it and bear fruit. Thy pleasure and glory, as we ask and seek in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I did think that we could skate pretty quick through this portion, because it's really one thought. You remember the Indian map analogy? And I think I'm going to try and stick to that, although each verse could become its own, its own series. It's really... How do you go quickly through a vast treasure uh, storehouse? Um, Sean, I think you spent, was it eight months on one verse or something? Maybe that's an exaggeration. Four Sundays anyway, right? So he can sympathize with me on that. But um, uh, let, us, let us look into the Word of God. I see here um, three essential things for us to categorize it. Um, <coughs> Remember where you came from. Remember where you are. And let's look at where you are. Those, basically those three ideas are here, but there's a lot in them. And we looked at verse 10. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember, because you've been ordained to these good works, we looked at those works last time, remember that you used to be a sinner. And this remembering is supposed to motivate us to be focused and to be given to those good works. Right? Uh, God has ordained that we should walk in good works. He's given, you know, his long introduction, and then he's, by grace you're saved, not of yourself, lest any man should boast, right? Um, Not of works, rather, lest any man should boast. 
Uh, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God has ordained that we should walk in. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, without God in the world. And we want to understand what's being said there uh, by the apostle. Remember, right? Gentiles uh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision. And I think it's going to stick. There are two words that describe this kind of thing that occur over and over and over in the scripture. And one of them is called uh, uh, metonymy. And the other is called synecdoche. Yeah, there's a few $10 words for you to kind of show off at parties and so on. Uh, but they're very similar. They're very similar. And uh, <laughs> the, um, the synecdoche is where the part of a thing is referenced and the whole is understood. Right? So, man, those are nice wheels, right? Well... Might be the actual mags on the car, but really the person's talking about the whole vehicle. Nice wheels you got there, man. Um, it's not just a reference to the overpriced rims, but the wheels, which are part of the car, are made reference for the whole car. So that would be synecdoche, right? S y n e c o d no s i n e c d o c h e. But instead of dosh, it's doki. English is a lovely language, isn't it? Synecdoche. So, where a part of the thing is referenced for the whole thing. So, this is actually both. Circumcision is a part of the law and it's a reference for the whole law. Um, but a, a metonym is very similar. Um, metonymy is where you refer to the, the attribute of something or an accessory to it for the thing itself. Um, so, you'd refer to the crown. The crown has decreed thus and such. Well, crowns don't talk. You mean the king who wears the crown. So they're very similar. The crown isn't a part of the king. It's an accessory to the king. So they're very similar. You can see why, in spite of looking it up 10 or 20 times, I always get them confused. But I think I've got them now. So um, that or I've confused all of you. But that's the idea. And when Paul refers to uncircumcision and circumcision, that's what he's doing. He's not limiting the discussion to just those two elements. One negative, on, and the other positive. But all that goes with it. The circumcision. It's, a, um, it's both, right? It's uh, both a metonym and it's synecdoche for the, the whole law. The um, scouring your house for leaven before the Passover. The washing of your pots and yourself and all of that if, you know, a dead lizard touched you or something. And all of that law. And then the rabbis lifted it. Can you imagine? The law was strict enough, but the rabbis built what they called a fence around the law. For example, the law says thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. You don't take the milk from a nanny goat and get it in a pot and then take the kid and, um, and, you know, butcher it and so on, and then put it to seethe in a fire on that, uh, in its own mother's milk. It's a, say, well, what's the big deal? The animal's dead, it doesn't matter. Um, there are a number of things. Some speculate idolatry, but it is just a, um, uh, a very heartless and perverted kind of thing to do. Why would you do that? Why would you use the mother's milk to do that? There's, there are principles involved there. And of course it has a spiritual meaning that we're not going to take time to look into right now. But that, uh, so to avoid that, breaking that law, you can't have any dairy product with any meat product. In case somehow the milk in the cheese of your cheeseburger came from the cow, the mother of the calf that produced the Beef for your cheeseburger. So you're not allowed to have a cheeseburger as uh, a Jew, a faithful Jew. You can't drink milk until I think at least half an hour after you've had your hamburger. Because 
If the milk goes in, then that, that could be the mother's milk and it's seething. They don't just take it for goats, kids, but to, to beef, cattle. So they build a fence around the law. So if you thought the law was strict, wait till you get to the rabbis. They've lifted that game a whole lot, right? And that kept Jew and Gentile separate. It was, uh, it was a wall of division between them. There, there's more than that. But um, he's saying, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. And you were called uncircumcision. Those, um, you see it all through the Old Testament. This uncircumcised Philistine. These uncircumcised. They were dogs. They were subhuman. They were despised. The Jews, when they would return from the Gentile lands, they would unlatch their shoes and step barefoot onto the holy land of Israel and knock the dust off of their sandals and bring them on. Hence the Lord, shake off the dust off your feet when people don't reject you. It's unclean. The very dust of your feet, of your land, is unholy. and We don't want to contaminate our holy land with your Gentile uncleanness. Remember, that was your starting point. Uh, not just that rejection there. You're called uncircumcision by that which is called a circumcision. In the flesh made by hands. This was just the human level. The Jews um, as the, the uh, human descendants of Abraham. The physical descendants. And having the law and the covenants and the, the um, ordinances. The priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, the... the um, domestic purity that they had in their commandments, right? Their marriage laws, there were certain things forbidden. Um, Incest was a thing practiced in the ancient world, and it's coming back today. They're trying to remove all of these um, uh, things that are called taboos uh, slowly or quickly in our society today. But they, they had the form of righteousness in the law. Um, <clears throat> so they were, refer- you remember... You were despised. And the context of this, um, at the time Paul is writing, Christianity was still a Jewish religion. Some would say, well, it isn't now. Well, it's a long subject. And no, I, I'm, I'm not dismissing the Jews uh, in that. I'm simply talking about historical facts. It was still a, um, a faith, the gospel, was dominated by Jews. The apostles were all Jews. The time of writing, most of them were still alive. James had been killed with a sword. But uh, Jerusalem was still the doctrinal headquarters of Christianity worldwide. And so <clears throat> the, the Jewish believers were in the ascendancy. There was pressure to convert to Judaism. There's pressure to be circumcised. Pressure to keep the law. And Paul was battling against these things. That was a historical context. Now it's the other way. An Orthodox Jew gets converted and the first thing you want to do is give him a ham sandwich, right? Uh, Gentiles can be very insensitive to the, uh, the facts. Um, that's something Paul would fight against as well. You've got to give up this and, you know, don't keep the Sabbath anymore. All this pressure that happens to, to Jewish believers, that's wrong. Uh, <clears throat> and they've become, they've become like strangers in their homeland. Because the gospel is the natural home of the Jew. And that's what it was then. Uh, those, the, the spiritual ones, those with authority, those spiritual authority and gifting were primarily uh, Jews. <clears throat> and Paul is comforting these Gentiles, saying, remember, it, it's like the Jews were the royal family. And the Gentiles were the, the paupers. And now they've been let in the gate. <laughs> And there they are enjoying all of the, uh, the riches and luxury of the royal family. And Paul says, remember when you used to be poor people outside, begging in the streets without shoes and proper clothing. Remember that in the time past, you were Gentiles in the flesh, right? You're called uncircumcised by that which is circumcision. And then he gets to the spiritual realities. At that time, you were without Christ. If I understand that word and how it's used, and although even if you misunderstand it, you'll get it right. Uh, that term without is more commonly used in the scriptures, the old King James, to mean outside. Right? So, say um, <clears throat> somebody is, uh, um, you know, he's without a toolbox. That's how we'd use it. He doesn't have a toolbox, right? You know, without Christ, he didn't have Christ. That's how we use it today, but the scriptures... 
right? He, uh, Christ Jesus was crucified without the city, outside. That's what it would mean, outside. You were outside of Christ and his kingdom. That's primarily what is the meaning that is here in the passage. At that time, you were without Christ. You were outside of Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. And that term, no hope, doesn't mean that they were just all negative people. Oh, you know, doom and gloom. We're going to die tomorrow. It could have mean that, and it would include that, but that's not what the apostle has in view. It doesn't mean that their religious beliefs did not include a belief in the afterlife and things would be good for them. That's possible that they believe that. What he means is you had no legitimate expectation of glory. If you did, you were deluded because you were heathen in uncleanness, uh, marked for judgment for your wickedness. You had no legitimate expectation of eternal life. Remember, that used to be your situation. You're outside of the kingdom of God. You're outside of Christ. You had no part in the covenants God made to Abraham and blessing. That used to be your standing. Paul's writing this to Ephesians. One of the things we learn from this is this was primarily a Gentile church. Mostly Gentiles. That's the language that's used. He doesn't say, you few Gentiles, remember? He's, he's writing as if to a church made up entirely of Gentiles. That time, you were outside of Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope. And without God in the world. They might have had a belief in God. But they weren't actually in covenant relationship with him and he's saying remember that i'd like to touch on that little bit (laughs) and the the first part of verse 11 wherefore remember wherefore what well we we introduced it and just bring our bring our minds back there um because you're his workmanship created for good works in christ jesus god has ordained these because of this Remember that you used to be totally lost. And the reason he tells us that and commands us to do that is that remembering those things helps us to focus on what we ought to be on about now. Right? And we know these things, but um, it's good to be reminded of them. Peter said, though you know these things and be established in the present truth, I'm going to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So let us, uh, let us look at that a little bit. Peter, um, Peter writes in his second epistle. Uh, you know, there's a popular worldly song called Stairway to Heaven. Well, here's a better one for you in 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 5, giving all diligence add to your faith virtue. Step one. And to virtue, knowledge. Step two. To knowledge, temperance. Step three. To temperance, uh, patience. Step four. To patience, godliness. Step five. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Step six. To brotherly kindness, charity. Step seven. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you, that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Quite literally a stairway to heaven. Much better than that um, sinister, uh, subtle, um, sinful, worldly song. But look at verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. The apostle underlines or recognizes that somebody that is not diligently pursuing these things, one of the root causes is that he's not remembering that he's a sinner saved by grace. That he's a wicked person. He's not anymore. 
This is a problem for so much brethren today in our country, I, uh, common in churches, and let us examine ourselves, let it not be so. This is a common problem, is that God takes unclean people, sinful people, and he saves them, and they then forget really how awful they are of themselves and become judgmental people. And they are, become critical people. They find fault with the sinner and condemn and, and tut tut and awful, awful, awful. And then they turn that into the church and start criticizing brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so and fault finding here. Because they are, don't remember their own sinfulness. This is a thing. To forget that is awful. And so they, they're not now adding to their faith. See, they believe, yeah, I'm saved. <laughs> they really believe that. And Jesus saved me. They believe that. What does happen, unspoken, unconscious, is a crust layers over the heart where they, without consciously thinking it, start to feel like they deserve heaven. Because they're good people now. They don't drink anymore to drunkenness. They don't watch those awful things anymore. They don't swear anymore. They're fine people. And they become unwittingly proud in their hearts. And that pride is revealed just by their thought life that they look at the faults of others. And that's what they see, faults in others. And they have forgotten. And so the apostle, knowing this is, this is a great antidote, brethren, to pride and to uh, judging and to hypocrisy is to remember your sinfulness. Remember your Savior and what he saved you from. Remember that. And I really want to take a big highlighter and go all over it and underline it and circle it and point arrows to it. Because this is a, a powerful truth to immunize us. We've heard lots about immunization the past few years. It can immunize us against hypocrisy and, uh, and judging. Uh, it's so subtle and it's so close to every human heart. Uh, people become judgmental against judgmental people. I, it's just so near us to be that way. And it's unacceptable. It's an offense to God. It's not, oh yeah, you know, and we can console ourselves. You know, it, it, we, we, it's, it's like if we can talk about something that we're all weak and then it makes it okay. And, you know, can't be helped. This becomes a tolerable sin. Not to God. You can drive God far away and think we're fine. How many of you want a skunk to stink off in your living room? That's what it's like in God's living room. Like he's out of there. Hypocrisy. Probably. Judging. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that. He's forgotten. Look at, look at the language. He that lacketh these things is blind. He's forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. His current sins are quite acceptable to him and he thinks they're quite acceptable to God. We all have faults, right? All the nastiness has been cleared away. Let's look at this, uh, none other than, than Paul. Look at this with Paul, shall we? Paul remembered all the time his former sins. <clears throat> Look at chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. This is Paul nearing the end of his life. God has used Paul to convert thousands of heathen. He has used Paul to cast devils out of people, even his handkerchiefs. He's there laboring away and wipes his face and puts his handkerchief down. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Saul. Take that hanky and cast devils out of people with it. Raise the dead. Caught up to the third heaven. This was Paul at the end of his life with all of these things. Paul had had to trumpet out to the carnal Corinthians the things that God had done with him to try and shock some sanity into them. This is what he remembers. <laughs> the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord 
who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, and all the great things God has done through me, not at all. Putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is what he's remembering. After decades of spectacular ministry, the grace of God was so abundant in Paul that he labored more than all the apostles, all the other apostles. And the thing that dominated his thinking was, I am not worthy to be called a Christian, the chief of sinners. Oh, that Christ loved me. That's what dominated his thoughts. This is why Paul could genuinely perceive the grace of God in those carnal Corinthians. This is why Paul could look and see all sorts of faults, honestly, and not have an ounce of criticism or irritation. And only love and grace that flowed to him flowed through him. This is why. Because he remembered that he was a sinner saved by grace. When he says, I was a chief of, I'm the chief of sinners, he didn't mean that, you know, every day he was just failing the Lord. Not at all. He thought that there was nothing worse that could be done than to try and wipe out the kingdom of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And attack physically, continually, with a view to exterminating them, the redeemed of the Lord. Now, what could be more horrific than that, to not just be at enmity with God in the heart, but to try and wipe out that for which Christ died. To him was the greatest sin of all and made him the greatest sinner of all, the worst of sinners. And he remembered, like that, uh, like that man in the parable should have been, where, <clears throat> you know, I think, brethren, I can share personally in my own heart, this has helped me tremendously. If I'm feeling wronged by someone, it's a real wrong, I'm not inventing it. I remember what I'm forgiven. And it's like, you know, you open that window, that window, get a fan, and the smoke that's coming, just go, out it goes. And I have just compassion in my heart for my persecutor. It really does work to remember. It's not like, you know, I'm a good person struggling to look at that bad person. Oh, wow, I, I could just wash his feet. This treasure of Christ, this beloved child of God who may be not doing so well in this area now, but oh, I'm going, it's going to be my delight as part of my worship for Christ throughout eternity to serve this brother and be beneath him for all of heaven's glory. It just completely orients my thinking to align with God's. It makes forgiveness such an easy thing. Such an easy thing. Yeah. Remember, Paul did. And he tells us to remember the pit from which you were digged. The prophet might have said. <coughs> Look, he said it in a different context, so we won't go there. <coughs> Look unto Abraham, your father. <coughs> Paul writes to the Corinthians um, in chapter 15, you know, about the gospel. If you keep in memory what I've preached unto you, unless you've believed in vain. Failure to consciously remember and, and think about the redemption that Christ has wrought can cause your former believing on him to become of no effect. And forgetting, forgetting your own sinfulness can cause you to become proud and judgmental of others. And we are commanded, do, do we, you know, the Lord, we, we mentioned this recently, I think. Um, I don't remember, it wasn't the passage we were expounding, but we, we touched on it in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Who remembers that reference recently? Yeah. Um, that the Holy Spirit functions in our lives similar to how a mother in the, in the home. Now, this is not, you know, illustrations and stereotypes are 
loosely applied, right? But stereotypically, the dad is the firm, strong hand, and children learn from a young age that fear of daddy is the beginning of wisdom, right? But mom's for comfort, and you can often get away with lots of stuff. You can kind of ignore mom's commandments and, you know, push the envelope and forget and, and delay and all of these things that children somehow seem to figure out that you can get a lot more latitude with mom than dad. I mean, does anyone made this general observation in life? Am I the only? Yeah. And the Christian does this with that gentle impress of the Holy Spirit. They fear the wrath of God, a stern providence from on high that bring the fear of God in, but that gentle impress of the Holy Spirit, the apostles saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you. That still small voice. And this that the apostle is writing, these are not humble suggestions. They might be written tenderly like that. It's a commandment of God. It's a word of God. Remember. Always remember what you are saved from and what you're saved into. That's the thing. And then get on with walking those good works that God has ordained. And one of those good works, it's a characteristic defining good work. And we read it quickly in our little stairway to heaven. It's charity, brotherly kindness, grace. Later Peter will write, be clothed with humility. These things flow naturally, and if I may say so, easily, to and from the heart that remembers his or her own sinfulness before God. It really does uh, change. And this is what the apostle uh, alludes to. Remember that ye being in time past. And all of those things that we might look at. So we'll look at um, uh, some things in detail, but perhaps next time. Remember uh, We're going to break uh, bread. We're going to have communion later. We're going to remember the Lord's death. Um, There's someone not in our congregation who listens to our messages and listened to our first teaching on the assembly. Remember, we we, uh, got off into groups and we read passages and we identified (coughs) certain characteristics on the the, uh, church meeting laid out in Acts. One of the things that we identified was that uh, they were meeting on the first day of the week, Lord's Day. And it seemed at our first reading that it was a weekly thing where they remembered the Lord's death. Is that right? That's how it looked. We're not you know, rushing to change anything. But let's consider that the effort it takes to remember and to concentrate and to think about. The death of Christ for me as a uh, regular and recurring and more frequent thing, it helps to keep us in the right frame of mind as we go forth into the world, remembering Christ died for me. Not because I'm good, but because I'm not. And that is a dispositional, that will have a dispositional effect that will further make us ministers of grace. I remember. Um, briefly, uh, while on the phone, Brother David Lapp mentioned that their congregation had uh, developed or taken up the practice of weekly communion, and they had found it uh, uh, very enriching for their fellowship and their spiritual life as a church. And he was quick to say, I'm not saying you ought to do that, but he was, we were just talking. He wasn't trying to give me a sideways nudge. I did take note of it. But we don't want to just copy others, right? We want to copy the Scriptures. Amen? But what we are noting on that is this remembering. Remember our own sins and remember the Lord's death for our sins. You're without Christ. You're outside of Christ. And of course, this, this will lead into a, a looking at, and I, I, I trust we'll do that next week in more detail, what we're into, right? Remembering what you came from, but he doesn't get in, in this passage, to their former sins. He did that earlier. In time past, verse 2, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past. This is Jew and Gentile. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, saved us by grace. There, and notice Paul doesn't get into all the disgusting detail of the sins that they'd all committed. Just the lusts of the flesh and the pleasures thereof and of the mind. We were all given to it, the religious and the unreligious. The Gentiles doing these things openly and celebrating them. Part of their religious worship. It's not fit for me to describe in church the, um, the things that the Gentiles got up to in the temple of Aphrodite. I, I, I cringe a little when I even share it just in conversation. A filthy, degenerate, unclean society filled with indecency and licentiousness. But the Jews, many of them, practiced these things in secret while pretending to be righteous. And they did them in their hearts and their minds. And that hypocrisy exists today. The difference between the the people that like to parade their uncleanness, literally prideful of those things, and people who rail against it, but in their hearts and in secret practice it. Hypocrisy, it abounds. I remember um, it came out later that the Republican, and I'm thankful I don't remember his name, but Republican politician in the United States who was leading the charge against the then president, Bill Clinton, for his indecency and his immorality in the presidential office, while he was railing against him for his corruption and his sins, he was actually committing adultery in secret against his own wife. While he was moralizing and denouncing the president, he was doing the same things. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for thou doest the same thing. The judgmental person is as guilty as the person he judges. God judges righteous judgment, as does Christ Jesus. And so... Uh, An antidote to that is to remember. But Paul doesn't get into all of the details of that, uh, of your sins. He's saying, (laughs) remember what you didn't have. That's how he's putting it here. In the first part of the chapter, remember the uncleanness. You were there and God saved you out of that. Now, as a motivation to continue, remember you used to be outside of this, this, and this glorious thing. You used to be lacking these positives. You were outside of Christ. You were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. You were uh, strangers. You're outside of the covenants of promise. You're outside of the hope of eternal life. You're outside of God. But now you're made nigh. Now you're in. Remember that. If you are saved. If you have trusted. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins and the regeneration of your spirit. Remember now that you have a hope of eternal life. You never used to, but you do now. Remember these things. Now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You're brought to these things. The covenants, remember later in, 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 a, in a different epistle, the apostle will write, all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. All of the promises. Read through Isaiah. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. He who hath money, right? He hath no money, come buy and eat, right? Without money and without price. That used to be only for the Jews, now it's for you. Everyone that asketh receiveth. Are you thirsty for God? But brethren, our problem is people people have a longing. And we're like the, the proverb. The desire of the slothful killeth him for his hands refuse to labor. How many are you familiar with that proverb? It'd be good to memorize it, get into our hearts. The desire of the slothful killeth him for his hands refuse to labor. <laughs> 
Wow. Desiring a good thing is actually having a negative effect because he won't do anything. And the Christian wants to know God but won't pray. Lots. <laughs> so this desire to know God leads to a sense of defeatism because we won't give legs to it. We will forever indulge ourselves with this, that pleasure, that indulgence. I'm not all wickedness now. Just anything other than the flesh-crucifying practice of prayer and fasting. Just seeking the Lord. Worship and coming away from all the things that delight our emotions and our thoughts and our bodies. Uh, the good things of life. We won't put them aside with any kind of consistent regularity and spend time in solitude and worship. Sufficient to move us from our generally ignorant state into a state of close communion with God. Although we all desire the result of that. Am I saying something that's not true, brother? I'm maybe not painting, not accusing you or you, but just generally as Christians. Isn't that our problem? And the apostle says, therefore, remember. Remember. Remember what's ours and go for it. Go for it. Remember what's yours by birthright. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, Joshua put it this way, There remaineth very much land to be possessed. How long be ye slack to go and inherit? Look at it, it's all before you. But it's not just rolled out. It's not brought to you by a butler, right? You know, this old English gentry or royalty, and the butler comes in dressed like a penguin, you know, with his white thing over. And, you know, somebody was um, giving a character assessment of the, the now King Charles, but when he was prince, you know, he's there working at his desk. Supposedly, an envelope fell off his desk into the wastebasket, so he rang the bell for his butler. Butler comes in. That fell into the wastebasket. Looks in, picks it out, puts it on his desk. Is there anything else, my grace? No, that's it, dismissed it. That's service. That's service. It's not like that, brethren. You and I have to go and take it. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon shall be yours. And the psalmist really showed the way, doesn't he? My soul followeth hard after thee. That's an allusion to a hunter. Not with a gator, but with his feet. Fleet of foot running. With all his might after prey, my soul followeth hard after thee. Remembering, brethren, will help motivate us to the pursuit of God. Remember where we came from. Remember where Christ has brought us. Uh, the, just the covenants of promise. The hope of eternal life. Fellowship with God. Remember those things. Remember that this is yours by birthright. I, uh, one of the things, um, in fact, this is, I think, why we went to BC when we did. The kind of personality I am, and I'm learning, it's better late than never, Got all kinds of work. I wanted to get this and this and this work done before I'd go away. But uh, I've got this small window of time to do this outing with my daughter before she's married. And so I thought, well, I'm so far behind in my work anyway, so it's another week. And I just canceled everything and went. I had a quaint practice. I think my younger daughters have missed out on this. But uh, I think I got the idea from my friend when they were little or much younger, I gave them each a coupon. One outing with daddy expires on your wedding day. Hannah's a go hard or go home. We went to the Calgary Stampede, flew to Alberta. And she decided, there it is. She took me literally. I thought, yikes. <laughs> Hope this doesn't happen. What if someone wants to go, you know? <laughs> yeah, glad no one's taking Elon Musk up on his trip to Mars or the moon or whatever, right? Be in the poorhouse forever after trying to pay that off. So Susanna saved up 
And uh, she thought, Dad, I want to hike to a mountaintop with you. And so we did. We went uh, one and a half kilometers up in the air, cloud level. The mountaintop we were on didn't have any snow, but the one right beside us at eye level did. That was just uh, last week. Cloud, you know, come down and up, you know, we're there. Oh, no, the cloud's wrecking the photos, you know. (laughs) That kind of level. And we were completely alone. Because it's a lot of effort. And why would you spend the effort to climb a mountaintop when you can sit in front of your computer and watch a video of someone else doing it? I said to her, this is what it's like spiritually, sweetie. Very few people will get to know God. We talked about Moses climbing the mountain to be with God for 40 days. It put a new perspective on it for us, having our knees telling us about what it was like for Moses. Uh, Yeah. I did wonder at the start, how's this going to turn out? Because there were two parking lots, one that you could get to by car, and then another kilometer and a half that you had to walk up to the other one if you didn't have a four-wheeler, which we didn't. And just the one-and-a-half-kilometer walk from parking lot to parking lot, I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do this, if I'm feeling it in the parking lot. But strangely, in terms of the ascent, that was the hardest part for me, was the parking lot. I don't know what happened. My body remembered that it could do stuff or what happened. I told Susanna, yeah, the parking lot was the hardest part for me. She said, good for you, Dad. Uh, it was the easiest part for her. But we made it. We had a great time, wonderful time as father and daughter. But I couldn't help thinking, brethren, how lonely it is in the mountain of God. How lonely. But I still think we should go. And the legs upon which we walk are the legs that kneel, the heart that loves, the eyes that read, the hands that pray, the mouth that sings, the soul that worships. This is what will carry us there. You're nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Paul is reminding the Gentiles, and we don't see this so much. So we're going to look at the principle here, and then, and then we'll probably stop here, um, uh, and apply it to what kinds of things it does apply to. Right? Remember, he starts this portion, you are uncircumcision, you're called uncircumcision, by that's called circumcision. This is a huge divide. Um, You're now made nigh. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Just think about that. Let's let's read uh, the few more verses there. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, So making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So he's looking at this great division between Jew and Gentile. It's a huge division. The the law, right? Um, The middle wall of partition. Where is it? Uh, Where did I read? Yeah, verse 14. He's broken down the middle wall of partition. This is... um, Um, a metaphor. It might have been an allusion to the wall that at time of writing still existed in the temple to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. The Jews being holy and toward the front, the Gentiles toward the back. And you've got this wall of separation. It may have been an allusion to that, or at least borrowing that as the figure. But it was still, that wall was still there. The temple was still there in Jerusalem at the time of writing. But the actual, the, the, that which was referred to in the Jewish writings and the rabbis, was the, that was the wall, was the law of Moses. And the rabbis would refer to it as the wall of separation. 
all of the customs that a law-keeping Jew kept made a wall between him and the Gentiles. We see it with the Apostle Peter. Ye know that it is an unlawful thing for a Jew to keep company or to eat with one that is called a Gentile. But God has showed me I should not call any man unclean. This wall existed. The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean and kept away from them. The Gentiles despised them as strange. There was an enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. A hostility. And Christ, one of the things he did is he removed that wall, that enmity. Now there are doctrinal things here about the Old and the New Covenant and and the ceremonial law and so on. And we'll touch on those things. But let's look at something of the heartbeat of it. In John chapter 10, Jesus spoke of this very thing of which the Apostle writes. John chapter 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he, uh, you know, I don't think we want to go start there because of time. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. And as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And I know someone to correct that and say one flock and one shepherd, but it's right as it's written. One fold. You you can have one flock in two folds, but you don't have two folds in one flock. Is that right? Let me rephrase that. I think I've muddled that. You um, You can have one flock in two folds, but you don't have two flocks in one fold. You can take your flock and divide it and put them in the sheep fold here and put some others in the sheep fold there. You can still have a division. The, the, that of which Jesus speaks is that there's going to be one covenant. It's not going to be Jew and Gentile. Other sheep have I. This is, these are the lost sheep. These are the Gentiles. That's, that's what Christ is referring to. One fold and one shepherd. One Lord, one God, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. Paul is talking about the same thing. <clears throat> he has made both one. He's removed this enmity. Now... There's a double or triple meaning in this. He's taking occasion by addressing the, the, um, the thing that caused the enmity. And it was all of the Jewish customs that acted as a wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. <clears throat> and he's not talking about the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Those have remained. The righteousness of the law remains. It's a ceremony. All of the physical symbols of the spiritual realities. The circumcision is no longer, the physical circumcision is not a requirement in Christ's kingdom. The dietary laws are not requirements in Christ's kingdom. They are shadows of spiritual realities. That which uh, your separation from these Gentiles, due to ceremonial uncleanness, has been removed. This barrier has been removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he's getting at. Um, in, in writing to the Colossians, he will state this thought more, uh, more emphatically, perhaps, or less ambiguously if we don't understand his, his writing. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Specifically saying that one of the things Jesus Christ did on the cross was bring an end to the uh, ceremonial commandments of the law, the violation of which would bring death. He that eateth swine's flesh is an abomination. That was nailed to the cross of Christ. <clears throat> and I'm not suggesting you should eat pork, but 
You're not sinning if you do. And certainly the Jew has no um, restriction from fellowshipping. Even if he brings his own lunch, we do that here. You've got um, gluten-free and all sorts of things. I can't keep up. Bless you sisters that can keep on top of it all. But we've got all kinds of people. They have fellowship together even though you have to eat different food. There's no division in our hearts over the different diets. Is there? I don't think so. I've never seen anything like it. And that's the same thing that, that would happen. The, the, the Jew would never bring himself to eat pork. But he can now sit with the Gentile that did. The enmity was removed. But the, also the enmity in the heart was taken out of the way. And this is that which applies to us today. And we'll go into the, the uh, communion here. Because we, we're going to remember the Lord's death. And we don't want to hurry through it. He has made both one. He is our peace, right? Reconciled both unto God. If we are both reconciled to God, we will both be reconciled to each other. He's slain the enmity with God, and he's slain the enmity between brother and brother, between Jew and Gentile. And if Christ has slain the enmity between Jew and Gentile, he has slain every enmity between a man and his brother. That's the thing. It's nailed to the cross. That fact, what did he do? Having, verse 15, abolished in his flesh. The enmity. It's flesh on the cross. Right? We sing that hymn. He was nailed to the cross. I've mixed up the tunes. Oh dear, I shouldn't try and do this. For me, you know. He was nailed to the cross for me. You know what? You could sing it to your neighbor. Your brother. He was nailed to the cross for thee. When you think about that, how are you going to have anything against it? Christ was nailed to the cross for my brother. Think that consciously. Remember that consciously. Your brother is beloved of God. Treasured of God. He's treasured by you too, right? You love the Lord Jesus. You love whom Jesus loves, right? You look at your brother and sister and you meditate on the fact that this Brother, this sister is treasured by God. And your heart will swell with affection. Even if they've been poking you in the eye. I know it's true. I've lived it. And I do still. That song, they are covered by the blood. They are covered by the blood. My sins are all covered by the blood. You ever sung that? I've sung by myself. They are covered by the blood. They are covered by the blood. His sins are all covered by the blood. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. <laughs> Help me over the fence here. Get my heart where it should be. Instead of feeling injured. or You could just hug them in your bosom like a babe. When you remember, he's slain the enmity. There might be some bumps and scrapes here. He might not be remembering that about you, but that doesn't have to stop you remembering it about him. It'll all be sorted out. We'll be embracing one another before the throne. I'm going to take it early and do it now. At least in my heart, if he kind of doesn't want me around, I'll still, whoever it is. And that makes it a lot easier to, to get back together again when you have that kind of attitude. You remember all that Christ has forgiven. He is, he's um, taken away the enmity. He's slain the enmity. He's slain it. The enmity, specifically the occasion, was all of the Jewish customs and laws that God gave to them through Moses. But he slew the old man. That's the biggest enemy. The flesh, the carnal man, he slew that enemy. Remember Romans, right? The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's enmity against the brother too, isn't it? The carnal mind, he's slain it. All the enmity. 
reconcile both unto God, so making peace. This glorious union of the two most divided peoples, one numerically large, the other numerically small, but the, the, the division <laughs> infinitely strong, the enmity between them, the Lord Jesus has abolished that enmity. He's broken down the division and he has reconciled both unto God in one body by the cross. Brethren, this is what he died for. This is what he died for. And so we hold this in our hearts. We remember it. He died for me. He died for you. And so the enmity between myself, my sins that have reached the heavens, he's wiped them out, nailed them to the cross, and yours as well. And there's nothing between us and God, nothing between us and one another. And we can walk in love. For this Christ died. We remember his death. His death was for this uh, destruction of all enmity. And so making peace. Peace between God and man. Peace between man and man. Woman and woman. Husband and wife. Brother. Brother. Brother and sister. Every enmity been slain through the cross of Christ and you and I must embrace and sometimes we we must embrace it afresh we want to remember these things and maintain that proper state of heart remember Paul at the end of his life Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief let us remember his death for us on that.